Uh, from that video, you might be able to tell what our topic for today is, a discussion on world religions and how Christianity fits into the very complex structure of world religions within our world. We are continuing our series titled Searching for Sophia. We do have several of these cards left, and we still have a lot of series left too. So if you have anybody in mind that might be interested in some of the topics we're going to be discussing over the next couple of months, then I encourage you to take a stack of these cards, put them out at work, hand them out to friends, invite the, your neighbors out to this series. I think that we're heading into the challenging part of this series. Uh, the first couple of weeks um, were, were challenging, but they're nothing like the challenge that I think is going to be presented to us over the next several months. And the challenge for me is not to present hope-filled messages that are anchored in the gospel, as we discuss some very challenging, complicated issues, but really the challenge, I think, is to keep the unity among a body of people that I have seen these type of questions and these types of conversations divide Christians. I worked at a, at a Christian university uh, for six years, and these issues, these issues really uh, developed sex within the Christian university. There were, there were pockets of people that, that said, we, we hold on to this belief regarding this thing, and you hold on to that re- belief regarding that thing, and so we're not going to interact at the lunchroom table. And it's really sad in a lot of ways. And so I hope that even through all these hard conversations, and I'm not going to give you all the answers, by the way. I hope that these conversations, I hope that the unity can maintain within our body. The unity must maintain within our body. That love must be the core focus. Jesus Christ must be the center. And if we ever take these issues and try to pull them into the center where only Jesus Christ belongs, then we've done Christianity a great disservice. And we've done Restoration Church in this body a great disservice. So that is the challenge, I think. So hang on to the unity of love as we explore some very, very challenging topics. To illustrate this uh, this point of the division, let me tell you a joke that I recently heard. I once saw a guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it, he said, but nobody loves me. And I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And he said, yes. And I said, well, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, well, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. Are, are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm Protestant. Well, me too. What franchise? He said, I'm a Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you a Northern Baptist? Are you a Southern Baptist? He said, I'm a Northern Baptist. He said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or a Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? And he said, I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. (laughs) Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over the edge. <laughs> you know, my hope in all these conversations is that we never get to that point. I hope that we can offer hope among a searching world. And that, again, we never push anything into the center where only Jesus Christ belongs. And that we keep him as our focus in all of these conversations. And always, 
with all these conversations, if I don't address some aching question in the back of your mind that you want a solution for, you want an answer for, then shoot me an email. I'd love to grab lunch or coffee and we can chat more about these issues because certainly I'm not going to be able to address every aching question that you have. The topic I will address today was developed from the following questions provided by you. What makes Christianity different than all the other religions in the world? Why are there so many religions in the world? What are they trying to accomplish? One of the kindest, most gentle people I know wants nothing to do with Christianity. Will he be in heaven? My neighbor is a universalist. What does that mean? I've boiled these down to, is Jesus the only way? Father, we need your insight this morning. Father, we need your guidance. I pray that you would open eyes and open ears. As always, Father, open our hearts that we might receive your word. Father, fill my mouth with words that I might speak, Father, what is on your mind regarding this issue. Give us wisdom, as the series suggests, Father, to understand this very complicated issue. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So if you were to take the train down to Temple University and go ask the average college student, is Jesus the only way? His response would probably be, I, I can't believe you would even ask that question. Do you, do you know how narrow-minded that question is? Not, not only is it narrow-minded, but it's inconsiderate and it's, it's offensive and it's arrogant. Jesus being the only way, of course he's not the only way. That, that implies that every other religion in the world and every other worldview in the world is wrong and that everybody who holds some other worldview or some other religious position other than Christianity is going to end up perishing in hell. Do you know how inconsiderate that is? Don't you know this college student will continue that every path leads up the same mountain, that all religions at the end are ultimately the same and it's just a matter of preference which one you want to choose? At the all end of the same conclusion, we all get to enter paradise at the end. It's just a matter of preference what path you want to take up the mountain. And if I were to be honest with you, I think that there is a part of me, a large part of me actually, that would love for that to be true. I would love everybody to be saved in the end. And I know that God would love everybody to be saved in the end as well. But the postmodern philosophy of our age that suggests that anything other than a pluralistic mindset... A mindset that says every religion is fine and doesn't matter which one you choose. Any other mindset than that mindset is offensive. And that leaves the world in a horrible condition. It leaves the world in a, in a horrible position because that perspective doesn't do anything to solve the problem. Pluralism doesn't do anything to solve the problem that religion is hoping to address. And so not everything is going to work out for everyone in the end. That's just the reality of it. Not everything is going to work out for everyone in the end. We'll talk about that actually next week in a little more detail. And so if you were to study every world religion, you would discover that at the very core, every religion is fatally goal-oriented through good works. Now there may be an exception here or there, but at the core of every religion is this fatally goal-oriented through good works. Because if religion is the point... If religion is what we're talking about, if religion is the point, then what I do is also the point. How I live my life is also the point. And so what I mean by this is that every religion has as their goal the life after the life that we are currently living. 
That is their goal. That is their hope. That is what they were longing for. That is what they were working to attain, the life after this life. That is the motivation by which they live because they want the life that their religion paints for them. So go ask the Muslim, for instance, what the goal of Islam is, and they will say that heaven, which is full of all of the sensual pleasures that one could imagine, and how you achieve that goal is by pleasing Allah through recitation and through praying towards Mecca five times a day, through fasting and through other good works, following strict rules. Then go ask the Buddhist, or the Hindu for that matter, what your goal is, and they would see, well, our goal is to escape samsara. And samsara is the cycle of life and death and reincarnation that we're all trapped in, and the goal of our existence right now is to escape that life after this life. And how do you do that? Well, you you do it by emptying yourself of yourself through good works and through selfless deeds. And that is how you eventually escape the cycle of samsara, is that you empty yourself of yourself, and the goal ultimately is non-existence. That's what they're aiming for. Then go ask the Mormon what their hope is, and they'll say, my hope is that eventually I would become a divine figure ruling over my own planet. And that I would have beings on that planet worshiping me and holding me and exalting me. That is my goal. And how do I do that? Well, I have to follow the strict adherence of the rules of the Church of Latter-day Saints. That is how you attain divine status and to inherit your own planet at the end of life. And then go ask the Roman Catholics what their hope is. And they would see, well, to stand before St. Peter and to be ushered into heaven. And how do you attain that? Well, it's through grace, of course. But grace is conferred through the sacraments. It's by going to the confession booth. It's by taking communion. It's by doing these things. That is how you receive the grace that will eventually end you up in heaven someday. Notice that all religions are fatally goal-oriented through good works. And what I find challenging, I think, is that if you were to go and ask the vast majority of Christians in our world, what's your goal? A lot of them would say, well, I, I want to escape hell, and I want to end up in heaven. So already we've solved one problem of the equation, right? That uh, we are fatally goal-oriented as well. Jesus Christ, worshiping him, gaining his life, acknowledging who he is, finding his life to, to infuse my body, that's not really part of the equation. I want heaven when I die. That's why I'm a Christian. I don't want to be in hell. I want to be in heaven. And several weeks ago, I presented this model of Christianity that is still prevalent, I think, in a, in a lot of people's minds today, that in order to be a Christian, I have to get inside the circle. And the circle isn't all bad, by the way. All these things aren't, aren't bad. I don't want to give a negative connotation to this, because a lot of these things are really good. Attending church, I would hope that you consider it valuable. Reading your scriptures, praying, of course, being baptized, of course, these are all good things. But these are not the things you need to do to get inside the circle in order to be saved. But a lot of people are like, well, if I don't go to church regularly, if I don't read my scriptures, if I don't pray, if I'm not baptized, then I'm not saved. And that is just what we've done is we've taken Christianity, we've put all of these checklists to it, and we say, unless you do these things, then you will not be in heaven. And what have we done? We've just morphed Christianity into every single other religion. We're doing the same thing, hoping for the same goals. And that's a real problem. And so address this problem 
let us, as usual, go back to the beginning. And, and I hope that these early stories in, in the scriptures, the story of Genesis 3 in particularly, I hope that it has already begun to infuse into your mind and into your heart. That you begin to learn some things about how the sinful nature works. We're going to talk about them quite literally every single day of this series. So we're in for a, for a long ride going back to Genesis 3. But I hope that it's been come engrafted into your memory and that you can learn to live life differently because you acknowledge what happened with the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so in the beginning, we know that God creates humans in his own likeness. God, being love, creates humanity in that same image. He wanted to share this love with his creation so that they too would reflect this same love back to himself and back to one another. And so love literally filled the air and the lungs and the minds and the hearts and the very bodies of humanity. The divine image was reflected to God, it was reflected to themselves and reflected to the world. And because we are the objects of God's love and in relationship with him, he is the object then of our love. For this love to be genuine and true and honest and sincere, it had to be chosen. For love to exist, freedom had to exist. And so God plants two trees in the garden. We all know the story. He plants the tree of life in the one hand. He plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil on the other hand. And he says, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. But if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you choose to reject the fruit of the tree of life and you choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you need to know that you will die. Choose life, in other words. Don't choose death, choose life. That is what God is pleading with his creation. Choose life. And so from page two of the Bibles, we have this core understanding of scripture that we have a choice. The text says you are what? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. We have a choice. We all know how the story goes. Adam and Eve take their freedom to eat. They reject God. They reject his love. They reject his life. And they eat of the tree that God had pleaded with them not to. And if you were with us last week or really any number of the weeks prior to this Sunday, then you would realize that what was established in the hearts and the minds of Adam and Eve were self-reigning kingdoms that were at war against all other self-reigning kingdoms. But you also might remember that humanity is naturally opposed to our newfound nature, right? God placed enmity, this feeling of great hostility towards our sinful condition. We hate the sinful condition. We're at war against the sinful condition, And so when the ancient religions began to form several thousands of years ago, this problem was still persistent. This problem was still evident. The the, the same problem of this hostility towards this recognition that something was wrong with us. It was persistent. It was there. And what do they do? They develop these religions to combat the problem. Religion is simply man's attempt to solve the problem that we all recognize that there is something wrong with us. And for thousands and thousands of years, humanity has recognized that there is something wrong with us, and they developed religions in order to solve the problem. 
But what is so fascinating about religion, I think, religion, is that all world religions that claim being good or being moral or trying to appease the gods through religious activity, that that is a good solution to solving the problem. All they're really doing is maintaining that you can keep your throne intact and by your own good and moral and self-serving efforts, you can glorify yourself as you appease the gods. Because after all, you are the one who is good. You are the one who is moral. You are the one who is doing right. And so you are the one doing what is necessary in order to achieve salvation, in order to cure the problem. You are the one doing what is right. And so you are the one who should be praised. You should make your throne more elaborate. And if you earn a salvation through your good moral efforts, then guess what? At the end of the day, the gods are actually indebted to you. They actually owe you something. But there's at least two problems to this. The first is, how can one actually tell if you are good enough? or if you are moral enough, or if you are appeasing the gods, how does one know when the scale is actually tipped in their favor? I mean, how does a Muslim actually know if they're pleasing Allah, for instance? Or how does a Buddhist actually know that they've escaped the cycle of samsara, and when they die, they're no longer going to be reborn into some you know, other creature, but they're actually going to enter into non-existence? How do you actually know that on this side of eternity? Well, the answer for most people is that morality and goodness become subjective. We compare our lives to the lives of other people, and we think that we are doing good enough because other people aren't doing good enough. And so I don't murder anybody, for instance, right? I've never murdered anybody, but there are a lot of murderers out there, so I'm a pretty good person, so maybe that makes me good enough. But what's interesting is that to the jihadist, for instance— In order to please Allah, their interpretation of the Quran is that you need to murder those people who are opposed to Allah. So how does my murdering make me good, and how does their murdering make them good? Morality becomes subjective. And so whose rules do you follow? And which rules do you follow? And how often do you follow those specific rules? And how do you actually know if you are following them? This reminds me of a story my dad once told when he was a child. He went to um, Catholic parochial school as a child. And one day he told me a story of how a nun told him that there were damnable offenses that could never be forgiven of. There were certain offenses that if you committed any of these, there's no hope for you. You can't be forgiven. And then she proceeded to write a lot of these offenses on a blackboard in front of his class. And the first one she writes... Never miss a Sunday Mass. And my dad is looking at this list and he's like, holy, I'm already screwed. I've missed like a million hundred Masses in my life. And all of a sudden, he has no hope. He recognizes he can't be good enough. He did not meet the criteria for this God's list of rules. And so there is no hope for him. And so what does he do at the age of 12? He starts drinking and smoking and living life his own way. Because who cares how you live your life if you know you're not going to appease the God that you're trying to appease? So how do you know if you're following the right rules and the right religion? Or how do you know if you've actually said enough Hail Marys? 
How do you know if you've prayed enough times to the right God? What the fatally goal-oriented mentality within our postmodern world would tell us is that you should just go and you should pick whatever religion gives you the heaven that you want. Do you know why Islam is the fastest-growing religion in the world today? Because the heaven that they promise is one giant party full of all of the sensual pleasures that anyone could ever want. And so in a postmodern world that says, hey, if you just want to follow a religion and get the heaven that you want, go pick anyone you want. And of course that's the one people are going to choose because it's a giant party. It's submission for the women, by the way, but for the men it's a giant party. The second problem is that deep down inside, everybody knows that we're not right. Everyone knows we've rejected God. Our conscience bears witness to that, right? We have this enmity, this hostility towards our own sinful condition deep down inside of us. I know for a long time that there is something significantly wrong with me, that I am not right, that I'm messed up. And so, for instance, go interview my children and say, hey, how good of a dad is your dad? And they'll say, man, he's, he's a pretty good father. Except for the two hours that it takes us to go to bed at night. When I'm like strangling my children. And when like I can't control my anger and my impatience because I just want to like throw them against the wall. I'm not a good father then. And I only get like four hours a day with them. So that's half their day. That's half their experience with me is like he's a crazy monster of a dad. But I know... I know that I'm not right. I know that there's still a lot of things that are wrong and messed up with me. I know that when food is placed in front of me, that self-control goes out the window. I know that I struggle to find compassion. I know that I struggle to care for people. This is odd hearing this from a pastor, right? I know that I struggle to follow through on promises I make. I know that I don't love all the time. I know that I'm impatient and that sometimes anger gets the better of me. And why does my conscience bear witness to this? Yes, I have the Holy Spirit convicting me. But the reality is whether you're a Christian or not, you recognize something is not right with you. Everybody knows this about themselves, that there is something deeply wrong with us. Everybody knows that there's something deeply wrong with the world that we live in. And we know this from the very first breath that we take. Childbirth is not only painful for the mothers, it's also painful for the infants. Taking that first deep breath of air is painful for a child that has never experienced that before. Having to cram yourself through a birth canal is painful, and so child children come out crying and screaming, and we say it's a great act of life, and that life has filled their lungs, and that's a great and beautiful thing. But at the reality, it's also a child screaming and writhing in pain because they are experiencing a world that is broken and falling apart and painful. And so from the very first breath that we take, we recognize that we are not right, that we are broken, that there's something seriously messed up with this world. I recently read a story of a Christian man that had converted from Hinduism. 
When he asked why he converted, he said, Well, one day, while I was in India, I watched as a cow stepped up onto a train track. See, cows are revered in India and in the Hindu religion because they are the giver of life. They produce milk that that nourishes and gives life to millions of people. And so cows are revered. And so this cow being on this train track caused a real problem, right? So when the train driver saw the cow, he ran the train off the track, killing and injuring hundreds of people. And for a split second, this man thought, good, the cow was saved. And then he thought, what the heck is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that my heart and my mind would be so twisted that the death, that the saving of one cow justifies the death of a hundred people? What is wrong with me? I'm so messed up. And here is why religion is also so screwed up, right? Because the real curse of religion that tells you that you can earn your way, you can keep your throne intact and just be good enough, is that religion inherently promotes and affirms that you can be good enough. Just follow the religious systems religion tells you and you can be good enough to appease the gods. But in reality, deep down inside all of us, we know that we cannot. We have this enmity that says, man, I've offered my sacrifices. I've gone to the confessional booth. Why do I still feel horrible about myself? I've prayed to Mecca five times a day. Why do I still have this aching feeling inside of me? Why am I not whole? Why have I not been completed yet? Why do I still feel unforgiven? It's because religion cannot cure the problem that religion sets out to cure. And so this man, this, this Hindu man who had converted from Hinduism to Christianity, he searched all through Hinduism. He looked for a way that Hinduism could make him feel good about himself. That could take this pain and this aching that he had deep inside of him, and he looked for a way that Hinduism could solve it and cure it, but he couldn't find any. And so he came west, and he went to America, and he learned about Jesus Christ. And he found forgiveness for his sins and for the messed up brokenness inside of him. And he was made whole and complete again. Because remember that religion is man's attempt to solve the problem on our own. But apart from God, we are dead. And so I think the question that we should be asking not is, is Jesus the only way, but where is their life? Because Adam and Eve, right, were given the option of life and death, and they chose death. We know that. So the question is, where do we find life? And to address this, I want to open up our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. If you have them with you, I'd encourage you to do that. Deuteronomy is early in your scripture. It's only five chapters, uh, not five books, I'm sorry, into your Bible. Deuteronomy 30 reads as follows, starting at verse 11. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. That is to follow God faithfully, in other words. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, it is in your heart, so you may obey it. 
See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And what does it say? Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to your to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this past week, I was at the Y. And I was walking out of the locker room, and I overheard this conversation. And man, conversations in male locker rooms are really dangerous things, really horrible things. And I'm walking out of the locker room, and I'm starting to go down the stairs, and I, and I overhear this conversation. I only hear two lines of the conversation, but I think it's indicative of the mentality that a lot of people have regarding texts. It's sort of like this. One guy is laughing. He says, yeah, you need to start going to church. And the other guy starts laughing. Well, I can't go to church, he says. God would zap me. I sleep with too many prostitutes. The reality is a lot of people have this belief that, like, man, I can't enter a church because God is going to be angry with me and he's going to zap me and he's going to kill me because I don't live up to his standards. And that's who God is. He's going to throw down a lightning bolt with an iron-fisted hand, and he's going to crush me and destroy me. God is vengeful up in heaven. He's looking to destroy those who do not bow down to him. But that's not what God is saying in Deuteronomy 30. God isn't saying that if you follow another religion, that you follow after some other God, or you bow down to something else... You know, and by the way, uh, all the religions that they worshipped, all the things that they worshipped, sex, money, and power, is basically the th- sums up the three things that was worshipped back in the ancient days. Guess what? Those are the same three things that we worship today for the most part. If you follow after another god, it doesn't have to be a little trinket on a, on a stand somewhere, an idol. It could be sex or money or power. If you follow after another god, God isn't going to smite you. He's not going to throw a lightning bolt at you. He's not saying that that God is going to kill you if you don't bow down to him. He's saying that there is no other way to discover and to find life. That I am the only source of life and I am right here. I am right here, so choose me. I am life. I am what you are longing for. Choose me. Don't run after those things. There's no life there. Follow after me and you will discover and you will find life. I am life. And if you choose another way of finding life, if you put your hope in something else, it will not go well with you. When you go into the nation that I have called you to enter into, they will destroy you if you find life in something else. It will not go well with you. So it's not like God is upset because we fill in the blanks the wrong way. It's not God is upset because we haven't checked off all the boxes. He's not sitting up in heaven with lightning bolts looking to destroy us. He's not going to kill us because we don't choose him. He's saying, I am life and everything else is death. 
I am life. Choose life. It says, the Lord is your life. Listen to him. Follow him. He is the only source of life in this world. There is no other source. And so likewise, when Jesus comes along in John's gospel, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. He's saying, I am the only one who has come for you. I'm the only one who has pursued you to bring you back to the Father who is life. I'm the only one who has been sent. And I'm the only one who loves you. Because every other world religion recognizes that they need to be saved. Do you guys get that? We all recognize that we have a problem. And the solution to the problem is to work and to be moral and to be good. We... Everybody recognizes the death in humanity, but nobody else has come for you. Nobody else was sent. Their gods just tell them to try hard and to work hard and, and good luck. I hope it works out for you in the end. Because Allah isn't coming for you. Allah sits back and he says, you be good enough and you earn your way to me. And Buddha didn't come for you. He tells you to empty yourself of yourself. You do the work, and maybe then you can escape the cycle of samsara, of life and death, and you can enter into non-existence. Krishna didn't come for you. Hinduism simply tells you to worship something, to hold some sort of ceremony of some sort of God, and in the end, you will be accepted. Joseph Smith didn't come for you. He says, follow alone the principles of the Church of Latter-day Saints, and then you will be Accepted. My friends, nobody else has come for you. Nobody else has come for you. Every religion looks upon humanity and its universal problem and simply says, good luck. And so this is the difference, and this is the beauty of Jesus Christ. And this is why I have devoted my life to following him, as so many of you have. Christianity does not offer you good advice. It does offer you good advice, but that is not the point of Christianity. It does not offer you good advice. It offers you good news. Good news. How many of you watch the news each night? Sad state of affairs our world is in, right? But what are they doing? They're not, they're not, offering you advice on how to live your life. They are proclaiming what has taken place in that day. And oftentimes they are predicting what will take place, like our weathermen who are horrible at it. (laughs) They tell you what has happened and they tell you what's going to happen. That is news. It is not advice. And so the good news that Jesus Christ offers us is something that has taken place already in history and a promise of what will take place one day in the future. Its chief motivation is not to offer you good advice or a pat on the back as you try really hard to accomplish something. Christianity declares what has already taken place and what is yet to come. It is not good advice. It is good news. Nobody else has looked upon your condition. No other God has looked upon your condition and realized, my friends, that you are in a hopeless state that you cannot save yourself, and out of great compassion and mercy and love came for you. No other God pursued you. 
to lift you up out of an infinitely deep pit and as a gracious gift offer you with no secret strings attached, life. No other God simply says, recognize your problem. Recognize that you are in the pit. Recognize the depth of your problem and how deeply it reaches into you. Recognize it and recognize also that Christ has solved the problem. Not religion, but Jesus Christ has solved the problem. And then don't by your own impossible efforts try to gain my salvation and my favor of you. You don't have any good works that you can offer God. Rather, simply trust that your problem has been solved. And what will happen is that God will implant with you the first fruits of his new creation, of his new life, called the Holy Spirit. And you will begin a new life. And that enmity and that frustration that you have against a sinful condition will eventually begin to wash away because you will find forgiveness for your sins. You see, there's no other God that pursues you and longs to be with you and longs to heal your brokenness. Only Jesus Christ. And in the same way that God presented a choice to Adam and Eve, whether to eat of the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the same way that he presented a choice to the Israelites to choose life or to choose death, in Jesus Christ he also presents a choice. And it's a choice because... The way that he pursues us and the chasing after us and the running after us to solve the problem was firmly embedded in love. And so if this love is to be real and if it is to do a good work in me, then it must be a choice that I make. Because God is love. And because this choice is love, it cannot just be forced upon us. And so briefly, let me reflect on a passage of Scripture, and I just want you to maybe even read along with me and close your eyes and meditate on the words. 1 John 4 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. This is how God pursued us. This is how God chased after us. He sent his son, his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Not that we would be religious. Not that that we would be burdened by a bunch of religious rules, but that we would live. And we would live through Christ. Because this is love, my friends, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was sent, he pursued to do away with the problem. Not so that we would have to do away with the problem by being good, but that he did away with the problem. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He cured the problem. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, right? That's the Holy Spirit being embedded in us. It's what it does in us. It begins to open up our our capacity and our ability to love other people. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He gave us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent 
pursued, gave his son to be the savior of the world, right? No other religion has done that. Every other religion tells us to get to him, but God came to us. And if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. This is so unique, my friends. There's no other religion that is like this. And I must reject any religion that is not based and founded on love and God's grace. And if there is any hint that we must earn the favor of the deity that we are worshiping, if there is any hint of that whatsoever, then it is not based on love. And if there's any hint within our Christianity that we must earn God through going to church or doing the rituals or getting into the circle, then it's also not based on love. You see, Jesus wants us to be fully alive. God wants us to be fully alive, and that is why he pursued us. That is why he came for us. He wants us to know the love of God fully and to be restored and reconciled by that love to the very people we were created to be. Remember the garden? When God creates humanity in his image, and we reflect that love to God and to the world, that is what it means to be human. That is what God wants for us through Jesus Christ to be restored to people who reflect that love back to God and back to one another. Love is the core component, the key component that separates us. Jesus isn't saying, follow me because it's right. Follow me because I'm right and all the other religions are wrong. That might be implied, but it's not what he's saying. He's not saying, follow me so that you can get out of hell. He's saying, do you want to be fully alive? Do you want to be the humans that you were created to be? Then, Jesus. He's saying that you were created so that the one true God would overflow in you and through you and be reflected to him and back to the world that the very deepest reaches of our soul and our mind and our body would be infused with this great love of God and we would come fully alive. That we would come full circle back to the people we were created to be. I'm going to invite the band forward and we're going to spend some time reflecting on this. But as they're coming forward, I I want to challenge you that if you don't know this already, that if you've tried to pursue God through your own good works, and you find yourself unable to do it, and you just get frustrated and down with yourself because you're just, you just wonder, there's got to be more to this than, than this ritual. If you recognize that there is a sinful problem in you, and we all do, I think, if we look hard enough, and you need a Savior to redeem you of that sinful problem, to cure that problem in you, to solve the problem, Because no religion can do it. We've already established that. No religion can do it. Only Jesus Christ and what he has already accomplished. It's good news, my friend. Then your responsibility is not to become a Pharisee, a legalist, and start doing all these things. It's simply to trust. To say, God, I have this problem deep within me. I've tried to cure it by being good. I, I thought that was a good solution, but evidently it's not. I can't Get rid of the problem. But you say, Father, in your word that you have already accomplished 
the problem. You have already fixed it. You have already solved the equation. So, Father, I'm going to put my trust in you. So continue now, God, as I put my trust in you to create in me the type of human I was created to be, that I might reflect your love back to yourself and to the world around me. And if you need that this morning, if you've never experienced that, then I encourage you to pray with me right now. If you have experienced that in your life and you need more of that reflection back to God and back to the world, if you need the the love of Christ to be deeper embedded in you, then pray with me as well. Father, we recognize that right now that we are sinful. Father, that we have chosen death. We recognize that, Father. We see it every day as we interact with people and that we choose not to care about the hurts in the world, that we recognize in our own self, Father, that we're not right, that we're messed up. But God, you say that you can restore in me a humanity that you've created me to be. So Father, right now I place my trust not in any ritual, not in any religion, but I place it in you, Father, for you alone, for you alone, Father, can cure me of the problem that I so desperately need a cure for. And so God, I I place my trust in you this morning. And so Father, you say that you will give me the first fruit of your spirit. Father, the first fruit of your new creation, your Holy Spirit would be embedded in me. So God, may this spirit now begin to live out of me and may the fruit of that spirit be love reflecting back to you, your love in me and your love to the world around me. And God, may it begin today. I I know, Father, that it's not going to be perfect. I know, Father, that I'm going to stumble and I'm going to fall, but begin it in me today, Father. And as I continue to journey in you, and I reflect and I focus and I meditate and I pray on, on what this love is supposed to look like in me, Father. May you increase it in me. Your, may your spirit increase in me as I decrease. Father, put to death my self-reigning kingdom, Father. And may I be fully alive, God, as you have promised in you. Amen. Now, you need to know that if you just prayed that prayer with sincerity of heart, then you have begun a new creation. God has begun a new creation and a new work in you. And again, it may not all of a sudden feel like you're like this, this super holy person that like never fails or stumbles again. I'm certainly not there. But what you will experience right now is Conviction. Because that's what the Holy Spirit promises to do. It says, I'm going to convict you of the ways in your life where you don't love God and reflect him properly and your love to others. And what you need to do with that is to say, God, you have put my death to death on the cross. I'm going to place my trust more in you, God. Increase your spirit in me and may it begin to live out. And you'll find that in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you have moved further in your journey towards being like God than you are now. And in 50 and 60 years, you will find that you are further in that journey than you were 30 years prior. It's a beautiful thing to reflect God's love back to him and to others. We actually become what we were intended to be.